Meet Your Maker makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup guaranteeing you the best price. Meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry, and Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to Deer IY this fall. Hunters, welcome back to another Flushing Gustum episode. This episode, again, is brought to you by Hunt Ready, upland vests sourced here in the U.S. of A., made for upland hunters to find their pursuits and always be hunt ready. It's also brought to you by Gundog Outdoors, specializing in safety gear for our working hunting dogs. Tonight, we have a special guest from Pheasants Forever, as well as the Sage Grouse and Grouse initiative uh it is michael brown and we're happy to have him on uh we got to talking a little bit he's a big baseball fan uh obviously a big bird hunter um so we're excited to have you on michael how about you introduce yourself yeah thanks for having me on yeah, like i said uh my name is michael brown i work at pheasants forever and uh I'm pheasants forever's sage grouse initiative field capacity coordinator which is a long name that uh i've got a staff of 16 uh, biologists spread spread across the western u.s who are delivering uh, conservation through the natural resources conservation service or nrcs using those programs to get um, healthy rangelands on the landscape with the support rural economies and the wildlife that depend on them. Nice. So how, how long have you been with Pheasants Forever? Yeah, so this is actually my ninth year starting. I started out in one of those field positions here in Washington State. I worked directly with um, ranchers, helped them install new fences, pipelines, and troughs, and did that for about three and a half years. Uh, and then was promoted into this role. And so now I've been here almost six and a half years uh, and continue to enjoy every moment of it. The staff that we have on the field are what's key, but uh, it's it's fun to make sure they've got what they need. Yeah. Uh, so in your nine years of experience, what's the, uh, the atmosphere and um, maybe the communication differences between when you first started with ranchers and how the things have changed now with uh, growing the grasslands and making the habitat. Has that changed much or is it pretty similar? No, I'm, uh, it actually hasn't. And I think that's what's gained us a ton of support. So if we look at where the Sage Grouse Initiative started in 2010, is that the Sage Grouse was petitioned to be listed as an endangered species. And it was found to be warranted, but precluded, meaning that it was um, out ranked by other species, right? Other species have had a higher priority than it. And so it gave NRCS and partners the ability to act be actually be proactive instead of reactive, right? Normally when a species is listed, it's listed and then we work to get it off the list. Uh, and in this case, we knew it was had the chance to be listed and had a date for when it was going to be re-examined. And so we could get ahead of that and try and get enough conservation on the ground in the right places to prevent that from happening. Yeah. 
And so NRCS sat down with Fish and Wildlife Service and said, you know, here are the practices that we offer that we think will benefit the landscape. Do you agree? You know, are there stipulations we need to put in place and how do we do that? And, and the impetus behind all this was really conservation through sustainable ranching. Um, and because that message hasn't changed for 10 years, I think that's what gained us so much support from the ranching community is that we truly believe the best thing on the, these Western range lines is providing uh, grazing systems that benefit ranchers. And if we can support that, um, then that's a win. Because any once you shift away from grazing, basically any other use of that landscape is going to be detrimental, not only to sage grouse, but any of the other species that use it. Uh, and so being consistent in that, um, we have really seen the communities who you know, balk at endangered species when you start looking at, uh, you know, say the spotted owls uh, in the Northwest forest, uh, where it was kind of being done to them, but we're turning to these ranchers saying, hey, we're depending on you. How do we help keep you on the landscape? And that message has really resonated. Yeah. And so what's a, what does sustainable ranching kind of look like? Yeah. So it's, um, I'm going to back up for a second and get to okay. that is that, um, the sage, uh, work, or sage grouse initiative is a part of the working lands for wildlife effort um, that NRCS has. So there's a bunch of different initiatives under that. Um, and sustainable ranching is part of this idea that it, it's maintaining working landscapes. And so for a landscape to work, there's some economy based on it, right? Agri uh, beef and cattle production, uh, sheep production, corn, soybeans, right? There's some kind of working capital being produced on that landscape. And so how do we maintain that economy and make it viable long-term? And in doing that, provide wildlife habitat for the species that depend on it. So from a, a ranching standpoint, that looks at having the right infrastructure. So pipelines and troughs and wells to get water where you need to, so you can more effectively use the landscape, but also so that you can use cattle as a management tool to make that rangeland actually more healthy long-term. And in doing that, you get better, healthier cows and you also get better, healthier wildlife. Dang, that was a really good answer. Uh, <laughs> So the Sage Grouse Initiative, you said, started back in 2010? Yep. Um, since the start of the Sage Grouse Initiative, do you have an idea of how many acres of land and ranchers you guys have worked with so we just this program? Eclipsed, we just eclipsed 9.1 million acres in the oh last of uh, impact of acres. And we've worked with over 2,500 different producers in that landscape. To kind of put this in additional context, because that just captures kind of the West. If you look at working lands for wildlife westwide, which picks up parts of the Great Plains down Oklahoma and Texas and works with uh, lesser prairie chickens, we're at almost 11 million acres impacted since 2010. And we've worked with over 3,600 producers in that landscape. Oh, wow. That is that's a lot of land. Yeah. Is, so is that land, it, would that all be considered private land for um, hunting purposes or is any of those acreages or acres considered public hunting land is it, or is it off limits? So the, the unique thing, right, when you get out west is uh, it's a lot of these landscapes are dominated by BLM ground, a little bit of forest service here and there. Um, but it's, the, the high quality land, if you think about people, you know, moving west 
and where they settled. The really critical pieces are the, the wet meadow mesic areas along streams and rivers. And most of those, 80% of those resources lie on private ground. But the operations as a whole depend on being able to access the public ground that surrounds it. So a lot of these projects are actually really close partnerships where the, the private landowner has the cows and the allotment and is working with BLM. And so you're impacting both private and public ground and that's ground that benefits any of us that we can go out and use. Yeah, no, that, that makes it even better that it benefits us and benefits them as well. So we're yeah. always looking for. Um, so with the, so Pheasant Fest was a, a few weeks back and uh, when I was there, I was talking to, uh, there's a, a group called the Sage Grouse Society mm-hmm. um, and just some other people and I, or not Sage Grouse, this, uh, it might've been a Rough Grouse Society, I think is who it was I was talking to. But uh, anyways, I was talking to them and mentioned that I'm going to be heading out to Wyoming to Sage Grouse Hunt this year and just looking forward to it. And everybody that I've, not everybody, but a majority of the people that I talked to at Pheasant Fest said, it's a good thing you're going this year because we don't know how much longer the sage grouse are going to be around. And it's after hearing your convert, you know, how many acres of land, you know, you guys said that you've helped with and whatnot. It's crazy to me to think that, you know, people are thinking in this manner of the sage grouse is going away mm-hmm. um, when it's, you know, and so can you yeah, kind well- of, yeah, so it's a it's a really dynamic one because partly right sage grouse used to inhabit eleven western states, so right basically from north the edge of North and South Dakota all the way out to California, from Arizona all the way up into uh, a couple of Canadian provinces. And so when you think sage grouse range, you want to stand on the hilltop and turn and not be able to see any other thing as far as you can see, right? They like huge intact landscapes and it's okay. anything you do to start breaking that landscape up starts pushing them out. And they're interesting in that, um, you know, power line going through an area which you wouldn't think has a big impact. Actually, they'll stop using 500 meters on either side of that power line. They might cross under it, but they won't use that habitat. They'll stay away from it. And our best guess on why that is, is they see those perch as perch points for raptors that can see them, right? Because they're a big, they're a big bird. Um, and so as we've fragmented the habitat and made it smaller, we've condensed sage grouse into certain pockets. And so you get this, you do get this really large population decline when you're looking at this massive range of numbers keep going down because we keep kind of chipping away at these large intact landscapes. That being said, if you look at the areas that continue to be large and functioning landscapes, big core areas that are on impact at the moment. Sagegrass numbers have actually been increasing in those spots. Um, And so you kind of have this gradient, right? Where you have the good habitat numbers are good and going up. Where you have that kind of transitioning where it's still mostly intact, but maybe something's coming in uh, development. Uh, One of the big things we fight is conifer encroachment. So um, pinyon pines and cedars are encroaching into areas where it's not large scale fires are shifting to an annual invasive grasses. Where those are starting to come in, populations are stable, right? They're kind of holding on, they're not going up or down. But as soon as you get outside of that, where the habitats fragmented, populations are going down. And I think because there's more area that has been fragmented, fragmented and is being 
impacted. That's why you get this overall trend line of sage grouse populations are going down. Um, and I think more than anything, it's we know the tools to implement, it's the pace and scale at which we can implement them is our biggest limiting factor. It's having the bodies on the ground to uh, implement the practices. It's having the funding in the right spots. I mean, a whole ton of things that go into that. Um, yeah. But for an example, right, a really cool project that came out, it's kind of, you know, would be the gold standard of anything is in Oregon, they've been removing uh, conifers from the landscapes where they shouldn't be. And in those landscapes, they've seen sage grouse populations increase 12%. Oh, wow. How long have they been uh, doing that project for? Yeah, that was a 10-year study. So, I mean, it's a long-term study. And the thing is, as soon as you cut the trees down, the birds will come right back in. They've got radio collared data that it's not like it takes two or three years for the birds to come back. Once the trees are out, they come right back in and they'll start using that area much more uh, effectively to have higher brood survival rates, higher nesting rates in those areas that have been treated. So you got, sorry, so you guys have uh, radio colors on sage grouse? Yeah. So there's the other really uh, thing that I think is important that sage grouse initiative does extremely well and working on for wildlife as a whole is not just acres impacted, right? We would consider those to be outputs, how many acres, how many feet, you name it. What we look at is outcomes. So what? What does this mean to sage grouse? What does this mean to the landscape? What does this mean to producers, right? There's a whole, all of that is kind of encompassed. And so our, we have a science coordinator who works with other groups, uh, USGS, other um, universities to keep track of what, what are the impacts from these projects. And so that was a long-term study in Southern Oregon where they radio collared uh, sage grouse and had areas that were treated and controls where they weren't treated and they were able to see how sage grouse used those uh, landscapes differently. Oh man, that'd be some pretty cool data to yeah. see how they travel and I mean, do they do they you know, like a pheasant they kind of say like, oh, a mile range is kind of what a, a pheasant lives in. Do you know based on that study how far grouse will travel it, in a given year time of year or it, is it just the all funny over? thing is is it depends there's kind of there's some grouse kind of sub i don't subspecies not subspecies but grouse groups that don't travel very far they'll stay within a given area and granted you're probably talking on you know square miles yeah. um but there are some of the and like up in montana the sage grouse that they've uh gps backpacked to watch will actually migrate all the way up into Canada and then back down south of the Missouri break. It's like a 250 mile round trip that they're doing every year. Uh, and actually, interestingly, Mir is very similar to the pronghorn migration that does a similar tract within that landscape. Yeah, say so you're gonna we're gonna have to be buying migratory bird feast for <laughs> these guys as far as they're traveling. Holy smokes. That's yeah. a that's a long ways. Yeah. So do they when is, I guess, kind of the migration for so it's, Yeah, so it's, you know, it's seasonally based in that uh, sage grouse are an interesting bird because they don't have a muscular gizzard. They're the only known bird that, in the U.S. that doesn't have a muscular gizzard. So they're not picking up grain and sand like your pheasants, right, and yeah. grinding it up their seeds. 
so they're really not eating seeds. They're looking at soft-bodied plant material and bugs. And so in the winter, they actually eat 100% sagebrush leaves. And they're one of the few animals that puts on weight eating nothing but sagebrush leaves. And then as you shift into spring, they start shifting over to um, forbs, so your flowering plants, uh, dandelions, um, legumes, different things, um, buckwheats that they'll eat. Uh, and they're transitioning through uh, really following the green line at that point. So they breed uh, on big lacks, or not depending on where you're at, they're big lacks, but all the males come together and display. And if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. They all get together and fight, right? And there's this sound kind of like popping a champagne bottle and it's just this really cool sound mm -hmm. if you have the opportunity you got to get up early to see it um and the females all watch and right there's jostling for position and then they're following the green line down into those green areas i was telling you about that are super important uh, you can see it on my screen i know others yeah. can't yep. see it that green line is really important so they're going to follow that down and be in these really wet meadow mesic bottoms um really wet areas into the summer. And then as those dry out, that'll, uh, uh, that's when they start shifting for their migration. And it just depends on, you know, if they can find it or what's nearby of really, I think what drives how far that migration is. There's some groups that right, kind of have three distinct migration piece points to hit those three pieces I talked about. There's others that'll just have two kind of a winter and a summer range. And then there's, you know, the Montana group that just has a massive, yeah, massive long one. So do they, when they're traveling, are they looking for uh, wet areas to travel to as theirs kind of dries up a little? Yeah, in the summer, that's where they're keying in on some wet spots. Yeah. And in the winter, they're looking for areas where the sagebrush is above snow level, right? They've okay. got to have access to it. Um, and so they're looking for healthy sagebrush, large intact sagebrush spots where they can hunker yeah. down and get some good forage. Have you ever wanted to process your own wild game from start to finish? Meet Your Maker has you covered. Meat makes professional-grade grinders, vacuum sealers, sausage stuffers, dehydrators, and just about everything else to turn your garage, deer camp, or kitchen into a meat processing haven. Meat only sells their processing tools direct to consumer, cutting out the retailer markup, guaranteeing you the best price. Meat also has the only lifetime warranty in the industry. And Meat ships your tools direct to you for free. Visit MeetYourMaker.com and use code WAYPOINT for an exclusive discount. And get ready to deer IY this fall. Has the, the droughts that we've been having the past two years, I guess, I don't know if Wyoming or Washington areas, if it's been as dry as like the Dakotas and Iowa per se, but have you guys noticed... Yeah, so what you see with droughts, I mean, droughts are cyclical, right? They've, they've come, and the West is in a, a massive drought right now, uh, is that the most stable kind of populations and lacking grounds where birds come together are where the most stable uh, water supplies are. So if you can count on water year in and year out in a spot, you're probably going to find sage grouse in those areas. In areas where drought has a greater impact, right? So that fluctuation or variability of the um, water resources is greater you'll see birds pop up in those spots, but then they'll disappear because they're really looking for a close proximity to get to those. Um, and it's a, well, I mean, it's a concern for everybody in the West that how do you kind of build in that resiliency into these landscapes, given that, uh, you know, we're working in landscapes where 
average rainfall is six to nine inches for the year and it's coming as snow and so <laughs> oh wow that's not much at all no no you're not getting much at all um and we can touch about i mean there's this really cool thing that we've been doing recently and promoting working with landowners which is we call low-tech process-based restoration so it's not your standard kind of bringing your tonka toys and trucks and do it it's trying to figure out how do you give nature kind of the tools to let the system function by itself. Uh, and you can do that with grazing systems. We've been doing that with um, beaver dam analogs and reestablishing beavers in systems where they historically would have been um, these things called Z-dike structures. Bas basically, at all, what it all is, is slowing the water down. So we, we've been really good at it, right? If something floods, we put a ditch in it and gets water off as quick as we can. And we're trying yeah. to slow the water down, which pushes it into the soil and acts as kind of a savings account long-term. And where we've seen those projects go in over the last five and 10 years, you actually decouple systems from annual precipitation, which means even in a system where you only get six to nine inches of rain, once the system's functioning, it stays wet regardless of how much rain you get. And so there's some really cool projects in the West that we can highlight and we can see the before and after that um, kind of our, one of our crown jewels is in Elko, Nevada, right? So super dry system, super dry the last couple of years and they've got a system in spots that's 100 yards across and 12 feet deep and hasn't gone dry once that's crazy <laughs> do they uh so in these areas sorry my dogs are running around upstairs no worries uh, i don't know if you can hear them or not but in these areas that you talked about relocating the beavers and building the dams and stuff is trapping not allowed at all in no, those so areas I mean, so there's still i mean it's uh you know it's a perception i think that it depends on the landowners and the community getting behind it uh that beavers are still seen as a nuisance and so it's figuring out how to work with beavers as a tool to help landowners and i think uh, we've spent a lot of time educating and promoting that which is key right um that it's not going to change overnight but when you see your neighbor doesn't have to truck water to his cattle and you're trucking water you're kind of going wait what's what's he doing and then i mean that example is interesting because all they what they shifted was their grazing um system and they didn't promote be beavers came in on their own once the system was had enough kind of vegetation um but that kind of word of mouth and communities going, oh, I see what's possible if we do this is really interesting. And there's just a ton of little stories across the West from that happening where ranchers are figuring out on their own, but it'll take yeah more conversations so that people don't trap and get rid of beaver. Although what we can do, right, is in areas where they're a nuisance, if they're in a town is trap a beaver and then move it to a location and let them take on the restoration efforts for us, right, if we've given them kind of what they need and then we get to sit back and they work 24 seven for, you know, nothing but wood scraps. Yeah. yeah they're happy, which is that <laughs> they don't have money growing on trees, which is, yeah. Uh, I want to go back just a little bit. I was going to ask it and uh, got onto the conversation with the whole radio recording of the, or the radio um, following the sage grouse. Yeah. Were you a part of putting those radio collars on? The not that study but i have yeah and it's actually how, how do you do but, that yeah this is a if you happened upon a group of biologists capturing sage grouse you would think they were probably high on something i'm going crazy because you go out during so 
birds start lacking March, April timeframe, depending on snow and kind of weather conditions. And what you do is you go out in the middle of the night with big fishing nets and someone blaring some rock music on a massive speaker and spotlight. And you walk through the sagebrush looking for the eye glow, right? Of them yep. sitting in the sagebrush. And then you just flash them with the light and it kind of freezes them. And you got to get close enough and kind of stay with one person behind with the net to get close enough and you bring the net down over them and then grab this thing. So you've got right, all these people walking around blaring rock music out in the sagebrush, strobe lighting lights across as they run around and dive on sage grouse. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what song you had on? I don't. I think we were playing some ACDC at the night. Uh, I was out. black or something. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they are big, strong birds. I mean, right. They're, um, bigger than a chicken or in that same chicken size yeah. and they are powerful so they are when you you get your hands on them there's no like lightly holding it you got to bear hug that thing that's crazy and then is it just a like a snap collar that you put on them or no so they're uh they're like backpacks there's a it's a small solar panel and on the backs so you get longer life and then you go around the wings and hold it on close to their back um and they'll take four points a day at least the ones we were using so you can get pretty good movements on them throughout a year and they last i think 18 months before the battery runs out oh nice that's pretty awesome is there a yeah. way to recover them or are you just kind of you can't so, i mean you know typically there's a couple mortalities so if a radio pack back stops moving it'll give you a mortality signal so it starts pinging at you like i haven't moved in a while and you can recover those and get them refurbished and sent back out um if they're on the bird the whole time, it's just cotton straps. So they end up falling off and you might get a mortality or a non-mortality indication, right? You just find the backpack and can refurbish yeah. them. Um, but not always. Sometimes they've probably just lost in the sagebrush. Huh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, that kind of reminds me of a story. So we did a, a prank in high school um, where we released pigeons in the school. The <laughs> senior prank. Yeah. No, not proud of it. But uh, I worked on a, a farm through high school. And so to catch the pigeons, which anybody that's looking for training pigeons, this could be an option. But uh, uh, we all we did is went to an old barn, took a big old spotlight, and you'd shine it on the pigeon. And it would just freeze them like they had, they had no idea what was going <laughs> on. And then you just reach up and grab them and yeah. throw them in a bag quick. So that kind of reminded me of that. We weren't playing rock music, but... Um, that's pretty that's pretty awesome how you guys guys did that how many do you, did you get do you usually do um when you're putting those collars on you know every study is different and it's um probably funding based more than anything i think when we did it the price per backpack was i want to this could be completely wrong i want to say it was like five thousand dollars per backpack they're not cheap uh so i mean you can radio collar them and then you're using a, a radio antenna and someone has to go out there and get points all the time uh and so it's you know usually based on what the study needs more than anything and then what you can afford in terms of backpack i think we had 16 marked here in washington state uh, i couldn't tell you how many they had marked or which way they were marking them uh down in oregon off the top of my head yeah do you know about how long a sage grouse lifespan is yeah so sage grouse are actually interested interesting compared to like quail or pheasant right i'm gonna hit you with some 
biology facts in that if you think of quail and pheasants, you gotta think of a mouse, right? They produce a ton of offspring, but they don't live very long. You know, like the pheasants, a year and a half, two and a half years is a, an old pheasant, right? Um, whereas sage grouse are much more like uh, an elephant, which we call uh, K-type selected, that if you can get them to adulthood, their survivorship at that point is like 80, 90% of birds survive but it's hard to get them to be an adult. Um, and so that's really, you know, that's one of the big pinch points and why we focus on these wet areas is you've got to have the nesting habitats and the mesic resources or the wet resources to get those young all the way up to being an adult. But once they're an adult, they're pretty much set and they can live, you know, five, seven, 10 years. Holy smokes. What's a, yeah. is like a year old considered an adult or... Yeah, once mostly once they make it to that first, if they can make it through that first winter, they're set. So by the yeah. time they hit a year, um, they're they're going to be on the landscape for a while. Is there what is the main sources of mortality for the sage grouse in that first year? Yeah, you, you know, it depends on the landscape. Uh, predators, so they're in spots where raven populations are high, uh, they can do a big number on taking out um, sage grouse chicks. Uh, raptors, uh, especially in the spring on lucking grounds, can take them out. Um, I'm trying to think. I, weird one popped in my head. I know it's, they've had problems with the ground squirrels will eat some of the eggs. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's your standard egg predation folks yeah. that are you're getting in the way and then your uh larger raptors and birds that are attacking the chicks yeah no that makes sense man i didn't i didn't realize that a sage grass could live to be five to seven years old i can't imagine how big they are when they yeah the big reach. males are you know if you ever when if you get out when you're out hunting if you get one they are they're not small creatures <laughs> yeah that's crazy uh before you're talking about how the the sage grouse don't have uh, gizzards and they live off of forbs and sagebrush and whatnot. How do they taste? You know, it's, I would say it's one of those weird things, depending on who you ask. Some people say, you know, the best thing you do is shoot them and you get out a nice applewood board and you smoke them and then you eat the board and throw the sage grouse away. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> um that it's, I think it just depends, right? If you get an old male, uh, I've heard they taste really sagey, right? Cause that's what they've been yeah. eating uh, a ton of. And so you're looking for a younger one to eat, but I've also heard folks who they hunt them every year and they get all kinds and they love them. So I think it's probably more how you prep them um, and your own personal palate than anything. Do you have a preference on? I actually haven't. So Washington state is one of three, well, yeah, mostly one of three states that doesn't hunt them because our numbers are so low here and they're separated yeah. from the rest of the range. So I haven't had a chance to hunt sage grouse yet. Um, the other two states are North Dakota and South Dakota. South Dakota has kind of been bouncing around having enough to hunt. But yeah, if I haven't had a chance to kind of venture out and, and taste one. Yeah, that'd be kind of interesting. It's kind of like an, an old deer, an old elk. They say the yeah. bull elks aren't, they aren't really that good to eat, but get a young one and it's usually pretty decent yeah yeah i've heard the same thing so what a so your background's you're a biologist right yeah um what got you interested in working with pheasants forever and becoming part of the sage grouse 
initiative? Yeah, I actually came a weird route, uh, which when I started as a sagecrest biologist, I'm not sure I could have told you what a sagecrest looks like, right? Okay. <laughs> which is, is pretty sometime. Um, so I grew up down in California and what got me into it was kind of two things. One, uh, waterfowl hunting. That's what got me into to hunting and I just absolutely loved it. And then a high school project working on our biology teacher said, just find something cool. And then that kind of fell in love with looking at wetlands and birds and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but that's where I started. <clears throat> and so I actually did uh, an undergraduate and a graduate degree really looking at wetland management in the Sacramento Valley and talking with private landowners because most of the ground there is private and how they're managing their duck clubs in most cases <clears throat> because two-thirds of the wetlands in California are privately owned and there's this huge variation in how much duck food you can grow and so we're having trying to have a better sense of what that looks like on the landscape. And so after school, that's what I was hoping to get into and was looking and just couldn't find a wetland specific job. And I went, you know what, I'll broaden my concept of landscape and see if I can pull in some uplands. And I knew a pheasants forever and just started looking for what jobs they had open. I was trying to stay somewhere in the West and stumbled into sage grouse up in Washington state. And then the rest is kind of history from there, but it's been a really fun journey to learn a whole new system for me it was a blast because it was like getting paid to go to school right you gotta go learn this whole new system and this whole new species but you didn't have the homework and uh, tests to go along with it and yeah. someone was paying you to do it <laughs> cannot beat that That'd yeah be awesome. what a what kind of gets you excited about sage rust that you stuck with it for what i think it's been? to me it's less about sage grouse uh, and I, I mean, I fell in love with this from my time working with private landowners in California is it's, it's the people. Um, it's thinking and finding new and creative ways to support people and being sustainable on the landscape, whatever that is. Um, you know, I would sit down with ranchers here in Washington and they'd go through and this is a you know, a farm that's been in their family for generations. And they're telling me, oh, granddad, you know, crashed his truck over here. And He's trying, you know, he just loves this landscape and he's pointing out, you know, I would, we could really use a well over here. And if we could get a couple troughs, that would really let us graze better. And then he'd turn to me like, what, all right, what do I have to do for sage grouse? And I'd go nothing. And he'd look at me and go, what do you mean nothing? I was like, well, do you see sage grouse? Oh yeah, all the time. I was like, good. Then I need to keep you on the landscape. Right? Yeah. And so that idea of, right. How do we keep these communities and these families working the land and make it so they've got some more, you know, disposable income because they've got the same worries we do. How do we put food on the table? How do I send my kid to school? How do I pay the bills? How do I retire? Not that farmers ever really retire. Um, and so if we can find ways to support them, that's what gets me jazzed because then everything else comes from that, right? These world-class habitat and the sage grouse numbers we have come from those communities that have been born and bred there and are taking care of those landscapes. Yeah, no, that's, it's funny. My grandpa's 85. He's still out on the farm every single day doing chores. It's like, man, yeah. they just got a work ethic that never ends. Yeah. Um, do they, is, are the programs for the ranchers, are they similar? So in Iowa, we have what's called like IHAP land mm -hmm. where they can enroll into a program which would allow hunters 
to hunt on it during the year, but we also have like a 10 year program where they can basically plant switchgrass for X period of time. And then they get paid per acre of land. Is that similar to how the programs work? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Sagegrass initiative runs off of when you hear the farm bill, right? All the talk and CRP, which is under NRCS, it's its own program. Um, There's funding under what we call an environmental quality incentive program or EQIP. And so there, what's, you know, unique about NRCS is it's a non-regulatory agency, right? It doesn't it doesn't dive into any regulatory and it's all voluntary conservation done by landowners who want help helping their land, right? NRCS's motto is helping people help the land. And so um, while there are some kind of systems like that that are rental payments, when you start talking uh, grazing and infrastructure, it's cost share to help them install a fence and you kind of shoot for, you know, kind of 75% of the cost that NRCS is covering. It doesn't work perfectly, but it's kind of a, a good ballpark that um, helps them put in that new fence or helps them drill a well and put in a pipeline. And if they're trying to learn a new grazing system, right, a new rotational grazing system after you've installed those, providing some funding because, you know, the first rule in cattle grazing is the cows have to go somewhere. So if you've got to go lease some new ground, you might kind of get a rental payment to not uh, graze your ground for a year or two to let that vegetation come back uh, and, you know, flourish and kind of get back, get its foothold back. Um, we can help cost area to put new grasses or uh, more diverse species of grasses and get the flowering plants back on the landscape. So, I mean, the, the options are endless. I think that's where some of the fun comes in for it's thinking through which, which suite of practices best benefit the landowner and the, the species you're looking at. So if it's sage grouse or mule deer, or, you know, elk you name it um that's what you're trying to pull together in those nice no that's awesome so never really talked much about you um (laughs) you know and uh uh, this is a ton of great information about sage grouse and what the sage grouse initiative is and i love this stuff and but so you got it you started hunting you got into it with waterfowl yeah have you got into upland hunting since working with pheasants forever well, I'd always liked, uh, you know, I did quail hunting and some pheasant hunting in California. I liked it. And actually, the first thing I hunted was wild boar in California, right after I got my license. We had some access. Wild boar is fantastic. Um, and I've actually gotten more into upland hunting here because it's, clo- it's a lot closer to hunt uh, from my house where I'm at. I, can, I found a pretty good spot, although it burnt this year, so I was lamenting that. It was like 20 minutes from my house and I could go chase Chucker and Hun and I found a nice little sweet spot that was the year before it burnt. I didn't not see at least one covey. I went out there and like I said, it was like, oh, I got an hour and a half. I can run up before I have to pick up the kids and (laughs) scare up a couple. So um, I think I've gotten more into it because of how close it is. Um, and I absolutely love upland hunting. I just love getting out there and walking. I'm probably the you know one of the crazy ones that when I go out on a long day, I'm hiking, you know, 15, 20 miles chasing quail and chucker and hun and pheasants. And uh, Washington's really interesting in how dynamic it is, depending on where you're at in the state. Uh, so I've had a ton of fun exploring it. Um, I think waterfowl is still near and dear to my heart i just love sitting in the marsh early in the morning and when you get decoy set right and you hit the call and they respond and they come in just cupped up it's awesome but 
I'm not too picky as long as I'm out in the woods. It's a blast. Yeah. And I've, uh, I think what drives a ton of it these days is dogs. Uh, I you know you said you had your dogs running around upstairs, but I've got two two labs. I've got an older one who's she might have done her last year. I was trying to gauge. She had some problems with her, her back hips because she just turned ten, and I've got a one year old who's I'm having her learn the ropes as we go, and so I'm constantly working on training them and trying to get them ready for hunt tests. So you run you run hunt tests as well then? Yeah. Uh, did have you so you ran them with your older one and gonna start with your younger one or just starting with your younger one well ran my older one a little bit right uh, i don't know if you have kids i've got a eight and a six-year-old so that took up most of the last eight years um yeah. which meant last time for dog training but they are to the point now where they love helping so they've been out helping throw marks and uh, i got a junior title on my 10 year old just last year okay. and so i'm really hoping to my goal is to get a master title on my youngest dog but baby steps i'm trying to get her ready for her junior past this year nice when do those uh when are the tests this year do you know or first one is middle of next month i think if i remember correctly and then there's two or three in may so i'm hoping by the end of may i can have her on a junior title uh that we've been working on she's coming along it's really fun all the things have been starting to click recently partly the snow's off the ground so we can get out and train and it's yeah she's just I got her out with some wingers and some dead birds the other day and the first time she saw this dead duck she's been mostly picking up pheasants she was like wait what's this and I was like oh okay and then yeah. she was amped after that <laughs> yeah once they realize what those feathers are yeah did you have her uh out in the blind or in the uplands this year hunting with you or no she just wasn't quite ready um this year and then just weird season actually this I went on my this my second year of elk hunting in the state and so that took up a good chunk in November and then we had a a big dump of snow and then it crusted over and I don't know if you've run into this problem but whenever I run my dogs on ice crusted snow it just tears up their pads and yeah. so they were kind of put up after that uh my older dog got out on a good opening day hunt with the kids and we got a limited ducks and then they got to go on a good uh I got invited to a released pheasant hunt. And so that was really beneficial for the puppy to give access to slower, dumber pheasants. <laughs> yeah, it is good. It's exposure form and they start learning what the bird is and uh, whatnot. What's, yeah. uh, what's one of your favorite hunting stories with your dogs, without your dogs, with your kids? Actually, one of my favorite hunting stories. So I was down in California and I was out, um, just on some general public land that you can hunt. And I ran into this ex-Marine uh, who was out hunting. He had just been gotten back from, I think, Afghanistan. But he had done like six tours in Iraq and oh, wow. seven tours in Afghanistan and was getting back and he was trying to get into hunting. And so I stumbled on him because he had knocked down a pheasant and couldn't find it. So I brought my dog over and we were trying to find it and never did, but got to talking. And so... Um, California has this um, lottery system where you get drawn on refuges. And so if you, you know, every so often you get a great piece of mail that says, Hey, I got drawn for this. And so I called him up and I said, Hey, I got drawn, you know, it's not the best refuge in the state, but you know, it should be at least a handful of birds and it won't be crowded. He's like, all right, let's go. And so leading up to that weekend, I was watching the weather and everything started shifting and we had this storm moving out. I was like, we might just get like super, super lucky. And there's only six blinds on the refuge. Um, and the one I wanted based on the weather is the closest one to the check station. But we also had last pick. So I was like crossing my fingers, right? Let's get this 
get this one. And I was hoping everybody was going to take the standard one, which is get as far away from the check station as you can. Yeah. And they thankfully did. And so we walked the, like maybe a hundred yards from the check station and get set up. And five minutes before shooting light, we had, I think it was like five wood ducks land in our decoys. And I was like, Oh, I was like, all right, we might get one shot of this. You know, we'll, we'll be set. And while we're waiting for, you know, first light, which now takes an hour, even though it's only five minutes, we had another group land behind us and the trees behind us. And we're just like, all right, just like, okay, we got this. Uh, and we're trying to calm right in the, first light comes and we shot them and I was like all right that's good we're, we got some birds and I think we each got one um out of the group and then I don't think I think the rest of the refuge may have shot like a total of 10 times the rest of the day and if if we had shot straight we would have limited out on wood ducks in like 30 minutes because they just oh, wow. came barreling into this pond at like 10 yards feet down and we were just like oh no no <laughs> <laughs> and shooting and so it was just fun because there's this guy you know he's trying to get back in the hunting and have this experience and so when we came That's out at the end of the day one. we had uh 12 wood ducks a drake mallard and a drake widgeon and i think the next group had like three ducks and they're like we were wondering what you guys were shooting at <laughs> yeah that is awesome man that's a yeah. heck of a day it's a good good one for him too you know getting back into it and just seeing all those birds and so this was this past year was my first year waterfowl hunting. So I grew yeah. up opposite. All I did was upland growing up and I grew up around labs, which is um I have goldens now. And uh you know, you're talking about when they're cupped up. So we did basically field hunts and a couple of our fields are super close. They're basically the edge of the field is the city limits. And then our field is the country, you know, where you can hunt and there's ponds and then, you know, ponds about 300, 400 yards away. And then the river is, oh, a couple miles away, but it's the way this cornfield is. It's almost like the first cornfield you can, the birds can come to and the first one they see. And I'm the first four or five hunts we were limited out within like 25 minutes on geese and granted you can only shoot two in Iowa and we only had four to seven people with us you know so not a ton of birds but yeah just the I mean there were some birds that were groups of them that were locked up like 400 yards out they're already just coming <laughs> in and I'm just like oh my god oh my yeah. god and, you know this is my dog's first year and we're out there and all these birds are coming I'm just like I'm trying to stay calm to keep them calm. And I'm super excited because everything's working, you know, I mean, these birds, they were going to, when we were picking up, they were landing like 20 yards from the truck. Yeah. They just, they wanted that field. And I'm like, yeah. Oh my God. When they say on the eggs, man, we couldn't even be anymore on the eggs. Yeah. Well, I think that's my, my favorite part of waterfowl hunting is that build of anticipation. Right. With I, I love the burst when you're, get a pheasant yeah, to pick up. but when you're seeing the birds coming like you said and sometimes they lock up way out there and mm-hmm. it's just that anticipation is just building and building and build it yeah I, yeah that's, you can't beat it <laughs> that's like i think what draws me to both of them is there it's such a different aspect of the birds right like you said yeah. the upland hunting you don't know where you can't see the bird right but your dog is on it. And so you're, you got that anticipation of your dog getting birdie and the 
birds shooting up out of the grass, but then waterfowl hunting, you see them from way over and you might throw them a flag, give them a call, and then you start seeing them turn or you they're out there and they turn back towards you. It's like, oh my God, here we go, here we go. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's just awesome. Just the two different aspects of and that's what makes it exciting because you can do one and then go to the other and it's just a completely different hunt. Yeah. And I just like being able to take my dogs on both of them and get them out and expose to them. That's what I found here. I had a couple of good days where I got super spoiled, where I'd get out and I'd hunt ducks in the morning, get my limit, and then just turn around basically and walk into the uplands and chase quail and chucker and pheasants. And that is a, that's a day. I so wish, some... I wish Iowa had a few more upland species. We are starting to see some more huns and, um, in some areas, but it's pretty limited to, you know, the main uplands pheasant. Um, but I do like chasing quail, man, when they get up out of the ground, just that yeah. type of flutter that they have. It's, well, it's awesome. You got to come west sometime because depending on which state, seven, uh, Washington has seven upland species you can hunt. Oh, wow. And you could do all of, if you, if you worked at it, you could probably hunt all of them in one day. So you've got blue grouse, rough grouse, spruce grouse, Hungarian partridge, chucker, quail, and pheasants jeez you guys got it all <laughs> how, how many have you begged all the species out there no i've tried i've gotten blues and roughed uh, i haven't got a spruce grouse is the one i've been missing but there's it's a smaller population you gotta get up in the northern kind of northeast piece um yeah. to chase those but i've gotten everything else yeah. and actually technically if they were open we have sharp tail and sage grouse I think if I'm trying to think, I, I think Idaho, you could get nine species and the same might be true for Montana if you worked it. Nice. Yeah. Might have to move out West. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, I know a couple of guys that live in Montana and man, they just love it out there. I don't yeah. know if I'd like their winters, I think is a little worse than here <laughs> with as much snow as they get, but gotcha. that would be, that part would be a little brutal. But well, Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Tons of great information about sage grouse. It was awesome learning about you and your dogs and what got you into hunting and a couple of your stories. Um, again, we'll stay in touch. I appreciate it. I learned a ton about it. And uh, everybody, check out Sage Grouse Initiative. Make sure to give them a follow on Instagram. And uh, we'll do what we can to support the sage grass and the habitat and hopefully keep them going for many years to come. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, if you've ever got questions on any of it, you're headed west. Don't hesitate to reach out. Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Awesome. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.